All right, we're ready to dig, dig into our topic today. And our topic is First Do No Harm, Foundation for an LGBTQ Affirming Theology. You are encouraged to chatter away in the chat if you like. That I think helps people uh, stay focused. So um, not a problem for me. So by 2005, I noticed it like a mild stomach bug, a queasy feeling that my evangelical views on LGBTQ were wrong. Most pastors, even privately affirming ones, do not hear candid accounts of the suffering of gender and sexual minorities in their congregations. They don't hear from the kids not yet out who internalize the stigma of a church culture that reserves affirmation, either by conviction or by fear or timidity. I had to study the scripture myself in depth to do anything about it because I was a pastor. But pastors are practitioners, not scholars. They're occupied with capital campaigns, supervising staff, putting out fires. There's actually little time for study, especially in-depth study, especially if the study is going to rock the boat. Still, I couldn't shake it until it doubled me over these policies are harmful, they're shameful, consigning LGBTQ people to lifelong religiously imposed celibacy. If true, oh God, you know, in, enforcing these policies would be a violation of my pastoral vow. So that's the, that's the angst that got me on this journey. Now, most pastors rely on trusted authorities within their religious comfort zone. The study required to swim against that current is daunting. We learn as pastors that every text derives its meaning from its linguistic, cultural, historical context. Plucking texts out of context and applying them to concerns the writers were not addressing is interpretive malpractice. And, but in this issue, key questions about the context are, are just contested up and down the line. So how daunting is this kind of study for many pastors? Think telling your grandma who has never owned a laptop or smartphone to figure out how to get on Zoom. Like, okay, Google it, grandma, as if that's gonna help. Few pastors put in the effort required and only after their conscience is screaming at them. Years ago, the evidence for the harm was, was greatly hidden, but now it's obvious. Exodus International, the ex-gay ministry, disbanded in 2013 because they recognized the harm. Studies show that an LGBTQ child raised in a non-affirming church incurs several mental health risks as a result, even though for straight cisgendered people, church is a mental health benefit. But we only need to hear our LGBTQ loved ones tell of the psychological torture caused by church teachings now, this is a rising tide of witness. However, it's easy to buffer oneself from their witness if the social cost is high. So allies in the religious realm need to grow some ovaries. We, we, we hope to help you, not by avoiding scripture, but by diving into it. Today, we're dealing with the one thing we all share, which is some awareness of harm. You're here because you know in your gut the traditional reading is harmful to yourself or your loved ones. Paying attention to the problem of harm 
is not a soft-hearted intuition to be balanced by the clear teaching of Scripture, as if to say, on the one hand, love, on the other hand, Scripture. Scripture itself urges us to be alert to this problem of harm. In this class, we're not dumbing it down because there's just too much at stake, and you are more highly motivated than most pastors are if you're in this class. You'll have to be patient with the learning process as we take one piece at a time. You don't have to master all the details. The notes and recordings will be available for a review. But once you get all the pieces over the coming months, things will really fall into place for you. You will have strength and conviction, and more importantly, I think, new confidence. I promise. So let's go with today's uh, piece, first piece. First, do no harm, the foundation of an affirming theology. Most Christians are only aware of a few New Testament proof texts trotted out by mostly liberal Christians to address the problem of harm. Some version of love your neighbor as yourself. This, of course, is the love that requires empathy and attention to harm. This verse is cited about eight times in different versions in the New Testament. Often, though, it's a key principle for interpreting Scripture. Like, how so? Well, Jesus summarizes uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is his exposition of biblical ethics, saying, In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. This is the law and the prophets. And of course, the law and the prophets was the Bible of Jesus. Paul echoes this in Galatians 5. The entire law is fulfilled in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. James echoes this in James 2 verse 8. And just in case we needed reminding that harming people is not loving them, Paul in Romans adds, love doesn't harm the neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So Jesus' followers experienced being harmed by those who were misusing Scripture against them. Paul himself did this before his revelation on the road to Damascus. So they were especially attuned to the problem of harm, and they addressed it as it came to interpreting Scripture. So these are not isolated verses, but the tip of an iceberg. Beneath the surface of the New Testament is what? the Hebrew Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament. That's the only Bible that Jesus and the New Testament writers had. And these are the writings that undergird a robust do-no-harm ethic. They're like the mass below the tip of the iceberg. You know, I've got my copy of the Hebrew Bible here, and it's got three sections, the first five books, the Law of Moses, the middle section called the Writings, and then this section here, the Proverbs. Okay, so it's a compendium of writings. If you add the New Testament in the mix, it's about this size. So you can see how important the mass below the tip of the iceberg is when you look at the Bible in that way. You know, at the height of the Cold War, I think it was 1960, when Nikita Khrushchev uh, pounded a shoe at the UN. Some of you older ones remember that. He said something in Russian that was translated on the spot as, we will bury you. I mean, it sounded like a threat of nuclear attack. 
but the UN translator raised in London missed the nuance of Khrushchev's words. It was an idiom that meant, we will outlast you. Not we will bury you, we will outlast you. Many things get lost or mangled in the art of translating, interpreting, and especially teaching scripture. Why? Because these are ancient Jewish writings, including the New Testament. And non-Jewish pastors paid too little attention to the Hebrew Bible, the Bible of Jesus and Paul. Even the Christian scholars of the, only, of the Old Testament only know the Hebrew scriptures as a second language, not a native tongue. Before we dive in, remember what uh, evangelical seminaries teach, but pastors rarely stress, scripture does not interpret itself. It's a collection of written documents. All written documents require a reader who interprets what is written. Take the sayings of Jesus written in the gospels. We know tone of voice greatly affects meaning. Every married couple knows that. Everyone with a roommate knows that. With written words, we can only guess at tone of voice. So all reading is an act of interpretation. Jesus knew this. When asked what's needed to inherit eternal life, he answered, what has been written, how do you read it? We read our Bibles through lenses of our culture, our religious group, our experience, our knowledge, and our ignorance. We need the lens of first importance offered by scripture itself first, do no harm. Now, in what I'm to, about to share, I want to acknowledge my debt to a few scholars. Jacob Milgram, Richard Friedman, Shauna Delansky, and Mary Douglas. And then um, a few friends of mine that have been conversation partners in this, Don Shiver, uh, pastor in Toledo, David Gushy, who will be speaking uh, next time, and Caroline Kittle, who you've met. So first of all, harming people in this life is the primary ethical concern of scripture, starting with Genesis. So the fruit of disconnection from the divine presence is evidence in the murder of Abel, followed by the spread of violence among Cain's descendants. By Genesis chapter six, the earth is filled with violence. And crucially, God is portrayed as affected by this harm against humans, other creatures, the creation. This harm, it is written in Genesis 6, 6, fills God's heart with pain. Direct quote. When we suffer, God suffers. Genesis is especially concerned, though, with family members ganging up on innocent victims. We call it scapegoating. It happens to Hagar, to to Abel, to Ishmael, and it's the drama of the longest narr narrative in the Old Testament, the story of Joseph, an innocent victim ganged up on by his brothers. Concern for harm in this life intensifies in Exodus, where the Hebrews suffer crushing harm, vividly depicted at the hands of their Egyptian overlords. Yahweh is introduced as the God who is affected by the cries of afflicted people. God's deliverance is deliverance from a situation of harm to one of safety called Shalom. Exodus ends with the construction of a tabernacle in which the divine presence dwells and humans can learn to approach God as a nearby neighbor. So the do no harm ethic is expanded in Leviticus. 
This is a book much more important than we think. Many resolutions to read through the Bible run aground on the third book in the Bible, Leviticus. There we find priestly instructions for temple worship, sacrifices, kosher food laws, purity rules, such foreign ways of thinking for modern people. But the ancient Near East, the region around um, the land of Israel, all, they all had priests, temples, food laws, and purity codes. These were not invented by Israel. Israel adopted them for their purposes, often radically reforming them in the direction of do no harm. So yes, our eyes glaze over when we encounter these rituals, but rituals always convey an ethic. Our modern rituals do. Baseball is a set of rituals that conveys an ethic, like unbiased umpires make the calls, not players. Three strikes you're out is an ethic. Uh, first time someone does you wrong, bygones. Second time, warning lights. Third time, they're out. Leviticus conveys an ethic through its rituals, a do-no-harm ethic. Irony alert. Leviticus also contains the only two verses in the Old Testament that address same-gender sex. The only other writer who does so is Paul. So when we cover Paul on this question, this background is important because Paul was informed by Leviticus. Before we briefly cover the Leviticus clobber verses, let's consider the underlying harm alleviation ethic, though, that is embedded in the rituals of Leviticus. This may be more fun than you think, he said, hopefully. First, the book of Leviticus explicitly frames its instructions as life-giving, not harmful. Since God's instructions, properly understood, are intended as a blessing in this life, that's the focus, harmful effects in this life indicate improper understanding of any instruction. Did you know the ancient sages of Israel taught, and I'm quoting here directly from the Talmud, all the laws of Torah, except idolatry, incest, and bloodshed, are set aside if their observance will endanger the preservation of human life. Thus, when harm is noticed as an outcome of observing any divine instruction, the continued observance must be suspended. This is a powerful principle for approaching interpretation of texts that result in evident harm to LGBTQ people today. Second, compared to the temple rituals of the surrounding nations, the temple rituals focus on human agency to cause harm. So in the nearby nations, sacrifices and incantations are offered to protect humans from the harmful effects of the demonic realm. That's the real concern. Leviticus pays no attention to the demonic realm. Humans are the agents of harm in Leviticus. This is the basis for modern ethics. So Paul actually has little to say about demons as well. He too is focused on human agency. Third, uh, how Leviticus has a, has a um, do-no-harm ethic. The kosher food laws of Leviticus, they seem so like bizarre, arcane to us, but they severely limit harm caused by the human appetite for food. Only three species of quadrupeds, cattle, sheep, and goat, are permitted for food, plus a few species of fowl. 
Deuteronomy, later adds a short list of wild quadrupeds allowed for hunting. But in Genesis, it's plant food only at first. Leviticus then imposes this severe limitation on meat eating. Actually, the earliest tradition says that only uh, animals brought to the temple for sacrifice can provide food for the Israelite families. So, and the animal couldn't be clubbed, couldn't be strangled, couldn't be drowned. It had to be slaughtered painlessly and there are instructions in Leviticus for how to do this. The blood of any creature is forbidden as a food source because the life is in the blood. This ethic far exceeds our modern protections of animal life. Fourth, the temple sacrifices of Leviticus, contrary to popular belief, convey a kinder and gentler approach to sin than many Christians promote. So temple sacrifices were not about protecting humans from God's wrath by slaughtering an animal to assuage God's wrath against sin. That was, that was a pagan idea, one that reappears in the evangelical doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. That's the theory that God's wrath at all humans for any sin requires the bloody sacrifice of Jesus. In Hebrew, sacrifice is derived from the verb come near. There were five categories of sacrifice. They're listed in the first, in the opening chapters of Leviticus. Some involved grain and oil, not animals. Sacrifices could express thanksgiving, fellowship with God, fulfillment of a vow, uh, those dealing with sin focused on inadvertent sins. So this teaches that most of our misdeeds are inadvertent, unintentional, done in ignorance. Sacrifice for intentional sin happened once a year on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, and covered the intentional sins of the whole community. So this is the opposite of ginning up guilt and shame over sin. Most of our wrongs are inadvertent. We don't know what we're doing. We don't have to gin up feelings of guilt and shame. We need to do better once we know better. See how different this ethic is from the hyper-focused, alarmist, neurotic occupation with sin in much of modern Christianity. We don't have time for the purity laws of Leviticus, darn you're saying, except to say, they too are a radical reform of the purity codes of the surrounding nations. The preeminent Jewish scholar of Leviticus, Jacob Milgram, demonstrates this. Most purity rules had to do with temple worship and nothing to do with sin. A person contracted impurity in the natural course of living by contact with corpses, genital discharges, a couple of other things. It was easily resolved by waiting till nightfall or a week or two or having a ritual bath. This is a much kinder, gentler approach than the surrounding nation's approach to impurity. The evangelical application of purity language to everything but sex between a man and his one wife goes way beyond Leviticus, but this is a topic in its own right. Back to our theme. Finally, anti the anti-harm ethic of Leviticus occurs in its pinnacle chapter, chapter 19, which is right between chapter 18 and 20, where our clobber verses are located. Chapter 19 is where you will find, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Jesus and Paul and James were quoting. 
which applied not only to Israel, but to the foreigners living in the land of Israel. Uh, it's fleshed out in, in uh, uh, chapter 19 as well. Things like, don't hate your neighbor in your heart. Don't take revenge or nurse a grudge. Don't cheat in business. Treat immigrants and the handicapped well. Or this one, which applies to our advocacy for LGBTQ people. You shall not stand aloof over the blood of your fellow. In other words, don't stand by while others are being harmed. So love your neighbor as yourself is the love that requires empathy and attentiveness to harm, both to ourselves and to others. Jacob Milgram says, uh, says of this verse, this arguably is the ethical summit, not only in this chapter, but in all of scripture. So Jesus, Paul, and James are agreeing with the Jewish scholar Milgram because they too were informed by the ethic enacted in the Leviticus rituals. And like baseball rituals have primed Americans to write three strikes you're out laws, the ancient rituals of Israel sensitized Israel to the problem of harm in the religious sphere. Okay, now we're gonna take a five minute discursus or rabbit trail to cover those two clobber verses that I mentioned earlier, the only ones in the entire Old Testament, Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. Then we'll go back to our do no harm tour and finish it up quickly. So chapters 18 and 20 cover prohibited sexual relations of, of a few different kinds. Leviticus 20 repeats much of Le Leviticus 18, but with a slightly different focus. So the main focus is various forms of what we would call incest. The male head of household can't have sex with certain relatives living in his extended family compound. Oddly, daughters are not included in the list. So this illustrates that ancient law codes are not precise they're often opaque, they're not comprehensive. Sex with a menstruating woman is prohibited, reason is not given, as is having sex with a, another man's wife, this is only mentioned in Leviticus 20, not chapter 18. The only other sexual prohibition is Leviticus 18.22, a first clobber text, and then it's mirror um, Leviticus 20.13, these say, a man shall not lay with a man as the layings of a woman. That's closest to the, uh, to the Hebrew. No re reason is given for this prohibition. The Hebrew wording is, is narrow. The phrase is used only to apply to intercourse. So in this case, anal intercourse. Of course, studies show that significant percentage of gay couples who are men do not engage in anal sex for a variety of reasons. When the reason for a prohibition isn't given in scripture, we look to the context for clues. Uh, the reason gives us a real sense of the rule in a way that uh, a rule that's offered without any reason doesn't. So Leviticus in 18 and 20, um, both of the, these chapters open with warnings against the ways of surrounding nations, especially uh, the idol worship of the surrounding nations. The source of all sin in Jewish thinking is idolatry. So it's possible the offense of anal intercourse had to do with its 
connection to pagan worship practices in the surrounding nations. Now, for example, Deuteronomy includes a ban on male shrine prostitutes. Remember, men did the temple worship in the ancient Near, Near East. So that's quite possible. There may be other pagan worship practices that we don't know of that involve anal sex. Uh, Roman men practice anal sex with male temple prostitutes in temples dedicated to Zeus. Zeus mythically was understood to have uh, uh, dominated phallically his young male consort Ganymede. That was all part of the Roman myth that was being replayed in the temple rituals in, in uh, ancient Rome. So in the ancient Near East in general, penetrating another male was a form of domination that shamed the male who was penetrated, in which case it's not about loving intimacy, but about domination and violence. So it's extremely unlikely that homosexuality per se was in view in Leviticus 18 and 20. It wasn't until I think 1859 that a word was coined to refer to those with a primary sexual attraction to members of the same gender, just as marriage between equals was unknown until later times. You know, there's an even more compelling piece of evidence that homosexuality per se, per se is not being addressed in this verse. Lesbian sex isn't prohibited here, where it would be expected if same-gender sex per se were the concern addressed by the writer. Scripture can't address all possible concerns. So the next, this next part is R-rated, so cover your ears, kids. Jewish scholars uh, Friedman and Delansky say polygamy was common in ancient Israel. There was no law against a man having several wives, even concubines, as Solomon and David did. Uh, these scholars point out that in polygamy, group sex often happens. So a man has sexual contact with more than one wife at the same time in a group setting. In such a setting, these rather Conservative Jewish scholars uh, acknowledge that it's likely the wives, while not attended to by the one male in the room, may have fooled around with each other. So the ancients were not ignorant of sexual contact between females. And this was a traditional society concerned, as many are, to control female sexuality especially. So the absence of a prohibition on lesbian sex is all the more telling. A female sexual practice is forbidden in the verse following Leviticus 18.22, where you would expect lesbian sex to be prohibited if homosexuality were the concern. But this verse prohibits female bestiality, which is also prohibited for men in Leviticus 20. Friedman and Delansky provide another compelling reason not to apply this to gay people today. Uh, remember, marriage bans affect trans people too, since the church disputes their gender. So it's, uh, it's a weird kind of illogic. Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13 uh, prohibit a man laying with a man as the layings of a woman, adding, it is toeva. That's the Hebrew word, toeva. Older Bibles translate toeva as abomination. You've no doubt heard this word. 
But Hebrew scholars agree this is a poor translation since abomination in English means the worst conceivable sin against God. A better translation is offensive. It is offensive. Now, Friedman and Delansky demonstrate that toeva offensive is not used as a moral absolute in the Bible. What is considered toeva offensive is different in different times and cultures within the Bible itself. So Moses tells Pharaoh the Hebrews need to leave Egypt to worship God because it would be toeva for them to do so in Egypt, offensive. Joseph says shepherds are toeva, offensive to Egyptians. The founders of Israel do things like marry a half-sister, which is considered toeva, offensive in Leviticus, but not in their time. We would find a 30-year-old man marrying a 13-year-old girl offensive. It was not in the time of the New Testament. So here's the kicker, though. Friedman and Delansky say, the Bible, I'm quoting directly, the Bible specifically identifies laws about things that are divine offenses, that is, offenses against God. Toeva Yahweh is the phrase, but that phrase is not used in Leviticus 18, 22, or 20, 13. So there was a phrase that meant offensive to God. It's not used in Leviticus 18, 22, or 20, 13. These verses do not say anal sex is offensive to God. The traditional certainty is hanging by a very thin thread indeed. This is grossly insufficient justification to apply these verses to the gay people we know and love today in view of the evident harm we know this causes. In other, in other words, your gut feeling, your observation, your awareness of the harm these interpretations cause LGBTQ people, harm vividly experienced if you are a gender or sexual minority, is buttressed by scripture itself. Let's finish our quick tour on this theme. On to the wisdom writings. We're almost done, don't worry. In Psalms, the major threat addressed in the Psalms is an innocent victim surrounded by a mob, either Israel itself surrounded by the nations or often an individual surrounded by a mob. For example, they have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers. That's from Psalm 109. Or, they have tracked me down. They now surround me with eyes alert to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion hungry for prey, like a fierce lion crouching in cover. Psalm 17. Many other psalms like this. Psalms are the best love portions of scripture, and many concern innocent victims thought to be guilty, surrounded by a hostile mob, often composed of former friends, not foreign foes. This is what so many LGBT people experience in many churches. So in 2014, my colleague Emily fell in love with Rachel. My book had been published uh, earlier that year. 
my denomination, Vineyard USA. The officials, when they heard this, they mounted a campaign against her, ignoring any kind of due process. They effectively outed her when her relationship was just starting. Emily had a choice, either get out of Dodge or tell her story to our church. She told her story to, in over two services, a thousand congregants who gave her a standing ovation. But behind the scenes, a mob formed in collusion with the denominational authorities. Some powerful donors of the church, a vocal minority who opposed gay marriage in our church at that time, leaders who went along, though they claimed to support Emily. She was forced out by this whole process, and I went with her to found Blue Ocean Church Ann Arbor. Mobs are formed by a few ringleaders launching accusations, enabled by a large group of silent bystanders who violate Leviticus 19.16. You shall not stand aloof from the blood of your fellow. So this theme in Psalms is powerfully reinforced in Job, another innocent victim whose closest friends turn on him and gaslight him with God talk, as if his sins brought on his misfortune. So Psalms and Job model the right of howling protest, a right of our LGBTQ loved ones. Nora Heal uh, Hurston, a really great African-American memoirist wrote, if you're silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. Of course, the prophets are attuned to the harm done to the powerful by the, uh, by the uh, done to the vulnerable by the powerful. Major theme in the writings of the prophets that Jesus, of course, picks up as a prophet. It's the overriding ethical concern of the prophets and Jesus. So Ezekiel, for example, several chapters devoted to the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel, harming the people they are meant to care for. God himself, who is affected by the harm in Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel has God say, I myself will come down and shepherd my people and save them from these shepherds who harm them for personal gain. So, conclusion. There is a theme woven throughout the Bible, missed by our bias against writings we don't understand that are using foreign to us concepts that we misrepresent. This theme is reinforced, reinforcing the obvious. Hurting people is not okay, no matter how many texts you marshal in your defense of cruelty. We have the spirit in us, we are bearers of the divine image. We don't need the Bible to tell us this. We don't need the Bible to tell us to brush our teeth or to warn against driving without a seatbelt or to wear our sunscreen. But because the ancient world was filled with people harming each other in the name of their God, this is an important part of the teaching of Israel passed on to us. Messiah's sufferings, depicted when we gather at the communion table um, week after week, reminds us his rising from the dead vindicates everyone scapegoated over all the sad history of the world, and his face shines 
on all those who join their suffering to his because he has joined his suffering to ours. This particular form of suffering caused by humans in God's name, an egregious violation of God's holy name. So perhaps there was a time when the harm done to LGBTQ people by these teaching was hidden to us, but it is hidden no longer. Now that we know better, we must do better. This idea that love has to be balanced with scripture is a slander of scripture because scripture urges us to listen to our hearts telling us what we already know, what you already know. You know, if, if we have a, if you have a Bible handy, I have a suggestion um, as we close. Let me take some time to, to hold a Bible in your hands and, and maybe to bring it to your heart. If, if it's triggering because this book has been used against you, well, just skip this part, please. But if you're, if you're thinking of doing that or you're doing that, focus your attention on the concerns that your heart has been whispering to you, this sense of distress in your heart, the distress you feel over the suffering of LGBTQ people. By the time you come to a class like this, you've been feeling it for a long time and it is strong. Attend to what your heart knows. And then as you hold that Bible to your heart, understand that you do not have to balance your awareness of harm with what this book has to say. Consider instead that this book contains an ethic running through it one that resonates with your heart and amplifies what your heart has been telling you for a long time. You know, because this has been a little bit intense, I'd like to have us end with a prayer. I wonder if um, we could put the Sarum prayer there in the, in the chat. Make sure it's up there. This is a prayer that we use um, every week to open our ser- uh, service at Blue Ocean. It's a, it's a lovely prayer. It comes from the 15th century. Um, and it's a prayer that very much focuses on God in our bodies. And, and those who have been shamed about gender or sexuality issues um, often end up uh, absorbing kind of a conflicted relationship with one's body. In fact, that's just something that all, all people in American society seem to have and especially within the church, unfortunately. And this prayer, I think, is a great antidote to that. So I'm going to pray it, and and you can um, kind of pray it with me together if you'd like. God be in my head and in my understanding. God be in my eyes and in my looking. God be in my mouth and in my speaking. God be in my heart and in my thinking. God be at my end and at my departing. So in the days ahead, let us strengthen our hearts with better heart thinking. Amen.